Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 58. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on February 4th, 2022, in sub-freezing, 21 degrees right now, Austin, Texas, where everybody has crossed their fingers, hoping that the grid will hold up. Last year traumatized us a bit. We're a bit behind this week, but long-standing listeners know that that happens from time to time. Sometimes we all have to chase the legal tender and hang out with our families and stuff like that. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there's dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. Mostly, we hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple or Spotify, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. Before we get back to Jamestown, it occurs to me that I left you hanging on one item. I had telegraphed in several episodes that I would be attending the annual meeting of the American Historical Association in New Orleans earlier in January. I had assumed that I would have much to report from that meeting on the podcast, but as it all happened, I ended up catching the crun. I was fortunate and had only the barest of sniffles for just a few hours. Basically, it was a three-tissue cold in my case. But I kept coming up positive on home antigen tests and isolated myself for 10 tedious days. Fortunately, my beloved wife never caught it. So I missed out on all that fun and interesting history, sad to say. Next year, the meeting is in Philadelphia, and I'm sure I'll do my best to get there. In this episode, we will conclude John Smith's run at Jamestown, which ended in October 1609 after a rather severe injury. Smith would never return to the Chesapeake. From here, we will pivot north and follow the interesting story of the French and Dutch incursions into vast early America. That will wrap up the busy first decade of the 17th century, which we first covered with Don Juan Oñate's settlement of New Mexico all the way back in episode 51. Never fear, though, we will return to Jamestown in due course with a story of unbelievable privation, all-out war, the game-changing cultivation of tobacco by the English, the stories of the two emissary hostages traded by Smith and Powhatan, and the two famous moments from 1619. No hard promises, though. As always, I will follow my muse. It is September 1608. At almost the exact same moment, John Smith returned to Jamestown from the second of his explorations of the Chesapeake Bay. At the Virginia Company's northern venture on the coast of Maine, the colony's president, Raleigh Gilbert, would learn that his older brother, Sir John Gilbert, had died and left Raleigh the family estates. 
Raleigh Gilbert would resolve to return to England, and that would bring an end to the otherwise more competent Popham colony at the mouth of the Kennebec River. Even farther to the north, Samuel de Champlain had arrived in Quebec and would begin to build the alliances with local tribes that would take him to war against the Iroquois of New York the next summer. Smith had left his ally, Martin Scrivener, in charge at Jamestown after the impromptu overthrowing of Ratcliffe in July. Scrivener had recovered from his illness, and on September 7th, Smith found the colony in somewhat better condition than it had been when he had departed. On September 10th, the Rump Governing Council elected Smith president for a one-year term. Captain Newport was scheduled to return that fall with more colonists and provisions, the second supply as it has come to be known. The settlement was not prepared to receive an influx of either, work having been much deferred by the diversion to build Ratcliffe's huge house in the woods. Smith immediately put everybody to work building storehouses and living quarters and harvesting the crops, insufficient though they may be. He also beefed up the colony's military preparedness. He imposed discipline on the rotation of the watches, and everybody had to take regular shooting practice. Newport and the second supply arrived earlier than expected in late September. He had brought 70 colonists, including two new members of the council, Peter Wynne and Richard Waldo, and Powhatan's emissary, Namontak. Newport also brought eight Germans and Poles, probably the first Poles ever to visit the New World, who were skilled in making glass, pitch, tar, and potash. The second supply also included the colony's first women, Mistress Forrest, wife of Gentleman Thomas Forrest, and her maid, one Anne Burris. In David Price's words, Anne Burris was the only unattached woman in a colony of about 200 long-deprived men. None of her letters or journals have survived, if there were any, so it can only be imagined how she felt about being at the center of this particular attention. Okay, that was probably not Anne's reaction. Sometimes I can't help myself. Anyway, Ms. Burris tied herself up as quickly as she could by the end of 1608, marrying John Layden, one of the surviving settlers from 1607. So, you know, he had a robust constitution. Newport brought new orders, which in most respects were the old orders. His top priority was to find something in Virginia of major value. Gold or silver, a route to the Pacific Ocean. You will recall from the last episode that Smith's exploration of the Chesapeake that summer had dimmed that hope considerably. Or survivors from the Roanoke colony. The Virginia Company had also delivered a new order, this one even more ludicrous. Newport was to place a crown on Powhatan's head, which in the English thinking of the day would make Powhatan a subservient prince to James I. Smith thought correctly that this was a fantastically bad idea, but orders are orders. The other members of the council either supported the idea in the abstract or didn't want to buck corporate, as we might say today. Newport's idea was to proceed upstream to Werowocomoco, Powhatan's capital on the site of today's Richmond with about 120 men. 
This would deprive the colony of most of its labor force, just as it needed to build housing for the new arrivals. Winter was, in fact, coming. So Smith sought permission from Newport to travel upstream himself and invite Powhatan to Jamestown. That, at least, would keep people working. Newport, being not wholly unreasonable, agreed that Smith should make the attempt. Ultimately, Powhatan refused to come, but the story of Smith's visit is interesting enough that it bears telling. Smith traveled to Werowokamoka with only five companions, three Englishmen, Namantak, and young Sam Collier, a boy or perhaps a teenager. When the group arrived at Werowokamoko, Powhatan was at another village, but Pocahontas was there, and she seems to have conveyed her father's wishes that the English be entertained. Now let's go to David Price's account of the moment. Quote, Thirty women emerged from the woods. They were naked except for body paint and a few strategically placed leaves. Each wore a pair of buck's horns on her head. More exotic still, the women had assumed the form of warriors. Some women carried bows and arrows in their hands, while others held clubs or swords. For an hour, the women danced in a circle around the fire, transfixing the visitors, in Smith's account, with most hellish shouts and cries, rushing from among the trees, casting themselves in a ring about the fire, singing and dancing with most excellent ill variety, oft falling into their infernal passions and solemnly again to sing and dance. The women left and then reappeared, this time inviting Smith to their house. There they found it amusing to crowd around him, chanting, Love you not me, love you not me. Smith and his men afterward enjoyed an evening of banqueting, singing, and dancing with them. The women then conducted each visitor to his sleeping quarters, and here Smith's account of the evening chastely ends. It was customary, however, for native chiefs to provide honored guests with a bedmate, and it can be assumed that the dancers and the Englishmen continued their entertainment into the night. We are a family podcast, so we'll leave it up to you parents out there to explain that bit or not to any of your kids who may be listening along. The next day, Powhatan arrived, and Smith presented Namantak to him. Powhatan, however, rejected the invitation to Jamestown, basically telling Smith that this was his land, so Newport had to come to him, not the other way around. The requirements of hierarchy recognizable to any old-world prince were equally important to Powhatan. Newport rebooted his plan. He sent three barges up the James loaded with gifts for Powhatan, an English bed, a wash basin, a pitcher, a scarlet cloak, a pair of shoes, and other furniture and clothing. Presumably Powhatan appreciated some of this, although it is unlikely that he would have thought much of the English shoes, which were inferior to moccasins for almost any application. Newport and his men walked overland a distance of 40 or 50 miles. Smith stayed home, either left there by Newport or because he did not want to associate himself with the order to submit Powhatan to James I. The coronation, you can't see my scare quotes, did not go well. Powhatan donned the cloak, but refused to stoop to receive the crown, feigning misunderstanding. 
Namatuck assured him that all was well, but either failing to understand or understanding all too well, Powhatan would not bend to take it. Eventually, a couple of the English suddenly pulled on Powhatan's shoulders, which forced him to stoop a bit, and three men quickly placed the crown on his head while a fourth fired a pistol in the air as celebration. Powhatan at least pretended to be unfazed, thanked Newport for his kindness, and gave him an old deerskin cloak and his moccasins in return. No doubt Newport's men were hoping for exotic dancing and an evening of fun, but none such were forthcoming. While Newport was away, Smith busied himself overseeing the construction of shelters. He also organized the Germans and Poles to make samples of glass, tar, and potash to take home for commercial evaluation. When Newport returned, Smith took 30 men downriver to cut trees to make clabbered. Since Smith generally thought that the colony was too tenuous to be spending its energy on manufacturing, he probably organized this trip so he would not have to occupy the same space as Newport very much, which would have been tedious for both of them. Regardless, when Smith and his men got back, he learned the extent of Newport's diplomatic failure. Powhatan had forbidden the local tribes from trading food to the English, hoping that the English would starve. Smith wrote a scathing letter back to the Virginia Company, ripping into Newport and informing the company in no uncertain terms that they had sent entirely the wrong sort of people to Jamestown. When you send again, Smith instructed, it's usual without regard for rank or social propriety. I entreat you rather send but 30 carpenters, husbandmen, gardeners, fishermen, blacksmiths, masons, and diggers up of trees, well provided, than a thousand of such as we have. While the company would discount Smith's cranky criticism of its leadership and eventually remove him from his position... It had the wits to listen to his human resources advice. Smith would not, however, learn any of this for months. Newport went back to England carrying, among other things, Smith's letter. Presumably he was gentleman enough not to break the seals, since Smith had described Newport's behavior in venomous terms, and the letter did, in fact, reach the company's directors. In any case, for the second year in a row, Newport had sailed in, screwed up relations with the Indians, and then sashayed home, leaving Smith to pick up the pieces. It was now December 1608, and again the colony was heading into winter short of food. In theory, they might have lived off oysters, fish, birds, and deer, but the English did not have enough competent fishermen or hunters to feed 200 people. Smith organized one trip to visit the relatively friendly tribes he had met that summer. After bargaining failed, Smith resorted to threats, and after burning a couple of houses, managed to extract a barge loaded with corn. That would not be nearly enough to make it through the cold and dark months ahead, and any further chance at help from friendlier tribes evaporated once word got around. Then another bolt from the blue... Powhatan sent Smith a message. If Smith would send Powhatan men to build an English-style house, along with a grindstone, 50 swords, some guns, a rooster, and a hen, which were new to Virginia, and various luxury goods, Powhatan would give the colony a shipload of food. Attentive listeners will recall that this wasn't the first time that Powhatan had asked for swords and guns, and previously Smith had refused. 
The new request strongly suggested that Powhatan knew he had the upper hand, which he did. Smith suspected a trap, but was running out of moves. He decided to give Powhatan what he wanted, except for the weapons. Smith sent the German glassmakers and 14 English tradesmen to build Powhatan an English house. One of the Germans was to act as a spy and send back intelligence reports. It is not clear why Smith assigned this job to a German, and it would turn out to be a big mistake. Just before Christmas, Smith set out with the rest of Powhatan's goods and around 25 men on barges up the icy river. Along the way, he stopped at various villages, and at one of them, the local chief advised Smith not to proceed to Werewokamoko. Powhatan might welcome Smith and his men, but it would be a ruse. The plan was to cut their throats. Smith thanked the chief for his advice, but said that he had already decided to take his chances. The winter weather was rough and the going was slow, so Smith did not reach Werowokamoko until January 12, 1609. There he sat down with Powhatan, who again wondered where the guns were. Smith said that he had none to spare, adding, And you must know those I have keep me from want. An implicit threat, if there ever was one. Powhatan, for his part, took issue with the English narrative that they had come for trade. Quote, For many do inform me your coming hither is not for trade, but to invade my people and possess my country. In early 1609, Powhatan's assertion was a prediction that would indeed come true, rather than a correct assessment of the thinking of the Virginia Company at the time. The genuine philosophy of the company was that it would only occupy waste ground in their terms, territory that the Indians were not using. Jamestown, for example, was on rather bad and marshy ground, and while within the claim lands of the Pespahegs, it was so swampy that they only used it for occasional hunting. The English were sincere in this at this point, but with the advantage of hindsight, we know they were kidding themselves. Powhatan saw more clearly than the English how this was going to go in the long run. Powhatan positioned his assertion as part of his broader theme that the English ought to disarm, or at least arm him comparably. A balance of power. The trickiest, most difficult, dirtiest game of them all, but the only one that preserves both sides. This was a private little war, and anyway, you can't have too many... Star Trek Deep Cuts. That night, Smith and his men stayed at Werowokamoko as Powhatan's guests. Two conspiracies were working against the English, however, one already suspected by them and one unknown. As they suspected, Powhatan was marshalling his forces to attack, as they did not suspect the Germans who had been working on Powhatan's house, including the German who had agreed to act as a spy for Smith, had decided that the Indians lived much better than the English. They hatched a plan to turn against the English. The next day, the Germans approached the Powhatans and offered their service. They agreed to spy on the English and steal their weapons and tools and to slow roll the construction of Powhatan's house to stretch out the period during which they could travel between Jamestown and Werowokamoko without arousing suspicion. Also the next day, Powhatan again sat down to converse with Smith and one other Englishman, John Russell, 
involving them in a long and winding conversation about the terms under which the Indians would supply food in exchange for this or that. Smith began to get nervous. Powhatan seemed to be burning clock rather than engaging. And sure enough, Powhatan excused himself, having a couple of the women present engage Smith and his companion in chit-chat. Then Smith heard shuffling footfalls outside the bark walls of Powhatan's abode. He turned to Russell and told him they were going to make a break for the boats, where the rest of the men were waiting. They blew through the door, Smith in the lead, firing a warning shot. He and Russell sprinted all out for the boats and hooked up with around 20 of his men making their way to the village. The warriors backed off once Smith and Russell reached their men and claimed it had all been a misunderstanding. The warriors had been assigned to protect Powhatan's corn so it would be available for trade with the English. Here's how David Price describes what happened next. Smith's response is unknown. Nonetheless, he regarded the explanation as a lie and remained suspicious. When some native men brought heavy baskets of corn in trade for Smith's presence, they solemnly offered to guard the Englishmen's guns and swords while the English loaded their boats. The English cocked their guns and said, in effect, no thanks, we'll guard the weapons while you load the boats. By the time they had finished, the tide was out and the barges were grounded on mud. There was no choice but to spend another night. Both sides were still affecting friendliness, and the Powhatans welcomed Smith and his men back to their quarters from the night before. After darkness fell, a visitor appeared at their door. Pocahontas, alone and shaken, had something to tell Smith. Her father, she said, would soon be sending dinner, and the men who brought it were going to kill the English with their own swords while they ate. If those men did not succeed in killing them, there would be a much larger attack afterward. Therefore, if we would live, she wished us presently to be gone. Back to me. Duly warned, the Englishmen remained on their guard. The men who brought the dinner indeed tried to get them to extinguish the match cords that they needed to light their guns and tried to get them to lay down their arms while they ate. That night, Smith organized the men defensively and maintained a strict and substantial watch. The main attack did not come. A couple of things might be said about this. First, Pocahontas had again saved Smith's life, or maybe this was just the first time. We'll get back to that question in a moment. Second, Pocahontas ran a great risk intervening in this situation, putting warriors of her own tribe in jeopardy to save Smith. She would not have done this if she hadn't developed feelings of some sort for Smith. Indeed, when Smith blockheadedly offered her some English trinkets as a gesture of thanks, the girl started crying. She rejected the beads, probably out of hurt feelings, but saying that if her father found them with her, she would be as good as dead. Unlike the moment the previous year when she threw herself over him to prevent Powhatan's men from killing him, there's no modern claim that this intervention was some sort of ceremony or test. Pocahontas had run a great risk to save Smith's life and had evidenced feelings for him in the doing of it. Now, I am not going to sit in judgment of the academic back and forth over whether the first rescue was in fact a rescue, because I do not know nearly enough about Powhatan cultural traditions to have an informed opinion. I will, however, summarize it. Modern historians, aided by new scholarship around the practices of Indians, 
argue that the whole thing was a ceremony in effect staged and that Smith's life wasn't in jeopardy even if he thought that it was. As I understand it, however, our knowledge of such ceremonies does not extend to the Powhatans or the other tribes in their confederacy per se. So the scholars who argue that the first rescue by Pocahontas was all a ceremony largely rely on two pillars. The practices of entirely different tribes that seem like the first rescue. And the broader skepticism around Smith's autobiographical writings, which tend to the dramatic and were probably embellished at points. Weighing against that, though, is that there's no argument that Pocahontas saved his life the second time. So that was something she was, in the abstract, willing and capable of doing. She was clearly an independent thinker and a bit of a rebel. Indeed, her real name was Matoica, and Pocahontas was a nickname variously translated as Little Wanton or Playful One. We report, you decide. The next day, Smith and his men departed Werewokamoka with their skins intact and some corn, which would help but not be adequate to get the English through the long winter. Smith resolved to visit Powhatan's kinsman Opakankanaw, who lived in the village of Pamunkey and was thought to have large granaries. Opakankanaw, who may or may not have been Don Luis Pequaquinio, was Powhatan's top military commander, and not to be trifled with. Opakankanaw greeted his former captive congenially, and the two bargained over corn, reaching a deal that, in principle, Smith thought reasonable. Then John Russell rushed in and told Smith they'd been betrayed, that as many as 700 armed men were outside the house. Opakankana clearly understood what Russell was saying, and from the expression on his face, he knew the jig was up. Smith's first move was to challenge the chief, at least 30 years older than Smith, to single combat. This had worked for Smith before, fighting the Ottomans. Not this time. Opakankanaw was too smart to take the bait and turned to walk out of the house. The much shorter Smith suddenly grabbed the knotted lock of hair hanging from the left side of the chief's head and put a pistol to his chest. Smith then marched the chief outside to the great surprise of the assembled fighting men. He then shouted out an ultimatum to the assembled Panunki that if they were to shed, quote, one drop of blood of any of my men, I will not cease revenge until he had hunted down every last member of the tribe. Amazingly, the gambit worked, at least for the moment. The humiliated Opakankanaw submitted and told his men to put down their weapons. Opakankanaw would not forget his humiliation, however. Smith didn't know it yet but the English and the Powhatans were now functionally at war. Smith did negotiate for corn in the moment, and as they were loading it up and prepared to depart for Jamestown, Richard Whiffin gentlemen arrived with bad news. A barge had capsized in the freezing James River, and 11 men had died, including two members of the council, Matthew Scrivener and Peter Waldo. Of the existing council, only Smith and Peter Wynne remained alive, and since Smith was president and had two votes, he no longer needed to worry about politics. For all intents and purposes, he was, under law, Jamestown's dictator. When Smith did get back to Jamestown, the situation had gone from bad to very bad. 
The food that had been in the storehouse had become infested with worms and rats that had stowed away on English ships and would now thrive in Virginia. Many of the tools and weapons had been spirited away, either by visiting Indians or the German traders, who were not yet known as such. According to James Horn, through the efforts of the Germans and several English they recruited, Powhatan accumulated 300 hatchets, 50 swords, 8 cannon, and 8 pikes. When the Cold War became hot shortly after Smith's departure that fall, the Powhatan Confederacy's warriors would be much more deadly than they had been in 1607. Smith called an assembly of all the colonists and effectively read them the Riot Act. Quote, I speak not this to all of you, for diverse of you I know deserve both honor and reward better than is yet here to be had. But the greater part must be more industrious or starve, however you have been heretofore tolerated by the authority of the council. You see now that power resteth wholly in myself. You must obey this now for a law, that he who will not work shall not eat, except by sickness he be disabled. For the labor of thirty or forty honest and industrious men shall not be consumed to maintain a hundred and fifty idle loiterers. There are now no more counselors to protect you. You want to eat, you want to work. The same order that Panfilo de Navais imposed on the Spanish gentlemen at the Bay of Horses in 1528, more than 80 years before. Settler colonialism is not for sissies or toffs. According to Price, Smith's order turned things around. Once food stopped being an entitlement, even the gentlemen went to work. Within three months, the men had built 20 more houses, dug a deep well that produced clean, fresh water regardless of the season, and planted 40 acres. They also built a checkpoint at the neck of the peninsula, at which they maintained a garrison at all times. After that, the thievery of tools and weapons ended. By the spring of 1609, the winter stock of corn was running low, in part because of infestations. Smith did as Ralph Lane had done at Roanoke 24 years before, and dispersed the settlement in groups so that they could more effectively live off the land. The idea was that 30 or 40 people could live in an area by hunting and fishing, but 200 could not even if each group were more vulnerable to Indian attack. Smith hedged this risk to some degree by paying a couple of the friendlier local tribes to host groups of English in return for copper. Other groups he sent downriver, farther away from the most hostile tribes in the Powhatan Confederacy. That same spring, changes were afoot in London. The Virginia Company had paid attention to the reports of Smith and other leaders and had actually bought into many of the recommendations. The company had decided that it was smarter to send a really large group in one go to establish the critical mass necessary to survive. They also determined to follow Smith's advice and change the mix of people to cross in the third supply. There would be more artisans, tradesmen, and skilled workers, such as carpenters, fishermen, and hunters. The company also recognized that it needed to strengthen the structure of the leadership of the colony, and that would require revisions to the royal charter. They requested the abolition of the colony council and the vesting of that power in the hands of a single governor. On May 23, 1609, a new charter was approved that did exactly that. 
Of course, Smith would have been the obvious choice for the presidency, he having provided the colony's only competent leadership in the first two years of its existence. Smith, however, respected neither fools nor class distinctions, and he simply sucked at corporate politics. Virtually every gentleman who had returned from Virginia found Smith irritating, and many of them loathed him. So Smith had persuaded the company of his point of view and nevertheless would lose his job. The new governor would be Sir Thomas Gates, an experienced military man who had fought in the Netherlands and Ireland, and as a young man had served on Francis Drake's mission to the West Indies in 1585 and 86 and been at Roanoke when Drake picked up Ralph Lane's colony. You guys saw what I did there, right? Smith would learn about the company's decision informally on July 13th when a ship under the command of Samuel Argyll, who would subsequently prove to be a gigantic dirtbag, pulled up to Jamestown. Argyll had been on an informal trip to test a different route across the Atlantic, and on the way in had chased off a Spanish ship at the mouth of the Chesapeake looking for the English settlement. Argyll told Smith that the company was going to relieve him of command. On August 11, 1609, much earlier than expected, the first ships of the much larger Third Supply arrived. The Third Supply would turn out to be nine ships originally. One had turned back early in the voyage, and the remaining eight had followed the old route south and west and been separated in a hurricane in the West Indies. These first four ships, the Blessing, the Falcon, the Unity, and the Lion, contained several hundred men, women, and children, plus provisions. Gabriel Archer was on the Blessing, and Smith learned that Ratcliffe, George Percy, and Christopher Newport would all be arriving in the separated ships, along with Gates, who would assume the governorship. In other words, other than Wingfield... Every toff who had ever confronted Smith and lost out in the encounter would now be returning to Jamestown. A few days later, the diamond arrived with Ratcliffe, and the swallow came a few days after that. Archer wrote that Smith gave not any due respect to many worthy gentlemen that came in our ships, which Price describes as something of an understatement of Smith's sentiment. Unfortunately, the sea venture with Gates and Newport, and it should be said Powhatan's emissary Namantak, who had returned to England with Newport the previous fall, didn't arrive and would never arrive. It had been cast away on Bermuda, and the men there would take the better part of a year to build two small ships and sail to Jamestown. That is its own amazing story that we will get to in due course, but for the time being, it meant that the company's new orders were lost. Much as the newly arrived gentleman insisted that Smith step down immediately, his term lasted until September 10th, and without those new orders, the new arrivals had no lawful basis for deposing Smith. They might have done so anyway, except that the veteran colonists and the sailors supported him and insisted that he finish his term at the very least. The common men understood competence when they saw it. Smith had to decide what to do with the new colonists. There would be too many to cram into the Jamestown stockade, and notwithstanding the new supplies, they needed to husband their food to get through the next winter. Probably 
With the support of at least some of the returned veterans, Smith opted for dispersion. He spent the rest of August locating the new settlers elsewhere in the region. Some of those relocations were more successful than others. The new group had the same foolish expectations as the previous arrivals. Until the privations of Virginia disabused them of their silly hopes, they spent their time looking for gold rather than building up the means to survive. And Indian attacks picked up, including skirmishing with warriors commanded by Powhatan's son, Parahunt. We will return to some of this in the future when we come back to Jamestown after the Smith era. In early September, just a few days before the end of Smith's term, he had an accident that would send him home. As he headed down river with some of his men, he lay down to take a nap. A spark from some source, a musket match cord or a pipe maybe, landed on his powder bag, which Smith still wore as he slept. It burst into flames and burned him terribly over his abdomen and thighs. He dove into the river to quench the fire and almost drowned. His men pulled him into the boat. The injuries were agonizing. On top of his demotion, this was the last straw for Smith. He booked passage on one of the ships, returning to London after the third supply. Smith going home and the colony losing his services ought to have been the end of it. But Smith's gentleman antagonist did not want him to go home and shape the narrative unqualified. Rather than preparing the colony for winter, the new leadership, acting in the place of Gates, who was on Bermuda but thought to be lost at sea, ordered the ships to wait for several weeks while they took testimony from everyone in the colony that had a cranky axe to grind regarding Smith, including one of the surviving and traitorous German glassmakers. Only when Smith's supposed offenses had been lavishly documented were the ships released to take Smith back to England. As they sailed away on October 4th, 1609, one can only imagine Smith's pain, frustration, and contempt. Smith would go on to live until 1631 and visit New England before the Pilgrims would land there in 1620. But he would never return to Virginia. He would see Pocahontas again, however. When she visited Jamestown looking for Smith, the colonists cruelly told her that he had died. In a story that we will get to in a few weeks, she would grow up and eventually marry John Rolfe, one of the colonists of the Third Supply stranded on Bermuda. Rolfe would take her back to England, and Smith would visit with her there. It would be awkward. This is the right place to stop for today. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>